On July 14, 1861, Major Sullivan Ballou of the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers wrote to Sarah, his wife, of six years. My very dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. And lest I should not be able to write again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind, and it bears me on irresistibly with all these chains to the battlefield. The memories of all the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and to you that I have enjoyed them so long, six years, and how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hope of future years when, God willing, we might have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you. And when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the gladdest day and in the darkest night, amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours, always, always. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think that I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. One week later at the Battle of Bull Run, Major Sullivan Ballou was killed. This gripping letter exposes the anguish of death, particularly as death rips loved ones apart. And perhaps no one in history has suffered this pain any more acutely than did the followers of Jesus Christ on the day that he died. <coughs> death was as real then as it is today. It hurt just as much. And let's remember that these followers of Jesus didn't see the end. All they knew was that Jesus was gone. Their master's life 
had shined in the darkness like a great torch in the deepest recesses of an uncharted cave. They had joyfully followed that light. But now that bright torch was suddenly extinguished in the cold, dark river of death. And the disciples now stood in the pitch darkness of a hopeless disorientation. This man was the man full of grace and truth. He was the man who made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the crippled to leap for joy. This was the man who stilled the storm and raised the dead. This was the man who taught the truth of God until it burst with power and glory in your soul. This was the man filled with love and purity and holy zeal. This was the man. No one had ever lived like Jesus. No one had ever bound himself to the heart of his people like Jesus Christ. And he was dead. Gone. His lifeless form hung on a blood-soaked cross. This was not merely a beloved husband or father or son. This was the perfect man. The sinless, gracious, loving, all-wise, holy, zealous Son of God. And all who loved Him were filled with bitter anguish as the hope of future years with Messiah were burned to ashes. They mourned him dead. Then out of the shadows, a most unusual disciple emerges and initiates a last act of courageous homage. Verse 50 of Luke 23. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man. Verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. We're introduced for the first time to this man, a member of the council. Joseph was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council of 70 leaders who formed the highest court in Israel. This was the group that had condemned Jesus at Caiaphas's house in the pre-dawn hours of Friday morning, chapter 22, verses 54 to 70. He was a member of that group. But we learn here that Joseph had not agreed to their decision to condemn Jesus. In fact, John tells us that Joseph was actually a secret disciple of Jesus. Luke tells us here he was a good man. He was an upright man. He was looking for the kingdom of God, this Joseph, a godly Israelite who lived in anticipation of the Messianic kingdom. But Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And he feared that his fellow council members would kill him if they discovered that he indeed believed Jesus was Messiah. And so, 
he made a decision. He made a decision to keep it quiet. To not let anyone know that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. But here we find this man stepping out of the shadows of fear. In verse 52, we see him going to Pilate and asking for Jesus' body. Such a simple statement, so complicated, so hard, so difficult. There was no question now where Joseph stood. His esteemed career as a member of the High Council was over. Closest thing to which we could parallel this, this is a senator who's making a decision to be brought to shame and for his career to end. All the glory and all the prestige, all the rights and privileges of the great high council member Joseph, it was gone. It was over. While Jesus was alive, Joseph maintained a secret devotion. But now that Jesus was dead, Joseph's heart surged with a devotion that nothing could quench. Edersheim draws the beautiful picture as he says, The winds of trial snuffed out the flames of Joseph's faith at the outer edges of the fire, while at the same time fueling the fire that burned deep in his soul. There was something about Jesus he could not extinguish. Now, in a final act of homage, that fire bursts forth in glorious flame, and he goes into Pilate's hall and says, May I take the body of Jesus? He's dead? Already? What do you want it for? William Barclay notes that the cross had already begun to unleash its transforming power. Fearful, secretive, hiding in the shadows, Joseph stands in Pilate's hall and asks for Jesus' body. Unless a relative laid claim to the body of a crucified victim, the body would have been left hanging for the vultures to devour on the cross or pulled down off the cross and left for the wild animals. Joseph simply refused to let that happen to Jesus' body. With impassioned courage, Joseph threw his life as he knew it away. And he chose to honor the memory of this despised peasant rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 53, then he took it down. And again, so much in those simple words. Then he took the body of Jesus off the cross. From Pilate's hall, he returned to the place of the skull. There, Jesus' lifeless body hung in the lengthening shadows of a blood-soaked stake. His body so ripped to shreds, so beaten to a pulp, so broken by the tortures of crucifixion, it no longer resembled that of a man in fulfillment of prophet Isaiah 52 and verse 14. But Joseph lowered that gruesome body to the ground and he pulled it from the cross. He took it down, verse 53, and he wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock 
one in which no one had yet been laid. Treating Jesus' body with dignity, Joseph wraps it in linen cloth, which was their custom, and he would sprinkle into the folds as he wound the body spices. John tells us that they used 75 to 100 pounds of spice. He and Nicodemus, who joined him, Luke does not mention Nicodemus, they wrapped 75 to 100 pounds of spice in this linen wrap, which was an amount of spice that would have been reserved normally for a king. It was dawning on them who he was. And they gave him a king's burial. Commoners, like Jesus, would be wrapped in this shroud and buried in a shallow grave in the earth. But this was an expensive tomb. It cost a lot to hire individuals to spend so much time to carve it out of the face of a rock outcropping. And this tomb Joseph had made for himself, but now he lays the body of Jesus there. And so in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah 53 and verse 9, Jesus is buried with the rich despite dying as an accused criminal. It's an amazing connection of circumstances. Condemned to die on a cross, normally left to vultures and wild dogs, this same one is buried with the rich, as the prophet said hundreds of years earlier. It was, verse 54 adds, preparation day and Sabbath was about to begin. It's an important time note. It's Friday, the day of the week referred to as preparation day because on this day you would finish up all your work for Sabbath, our Saturday. There was to be no work done, no work performed on Sabbath, so on preparation day you prepared your food and did anything that needed to be done around the house. Sabbath starts at 6 p.m. on Friday, so Jesus dying around 3 o'clock, Joseph's time is fairly limited. He needs to hurry and he completes his work and places Jesus in his tomb before Sabbath. The women, verse 55, who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. You know, there are people that I hear speak, I'll, by God's grace, never tell anybody outside of my wife who these people are, but there are people who speak sometimes, sometimes good people, and I go to listen to them. I come home and tell Beth, I would not walk across the street to hear that person speak again. And then there are people who speak, and I say to Beth, I would fly across the country to hear that person speak again. These women had traveled across the face of their world to be with Jesus, to attend to him, to hear his teaching, to support his work and his ministry. They had left family and friends and security behind and had gone on that long journey over these many weeks to attend Jesus from Galilee. They loved Him. They revered Him. They served Him. They gave their life for Jesus Christ. And now, here they are in this cold place watching as His body is lowered from the cross and wrapped. Their mind cannot grasp it. He's gone. 
They intend to add more spices to his body as a final act of homage. Maybe they don't know the spices that have already been given. Maybe they just don't care. They just don't know what else to do. To honor their Savior. They would enter the tomb at their first opportunity. Jesus being buried probably right before sundown on that Friday as it transitioned into Sabbath. They had to go back home to find their way in the utter darkness. There's no street lights. They had to get home quickly and they had to rest on the Sabbath. They're obedient, observant Jews. So they rest that Friday evening. They do nothing that Friday night but sleep all day if they could and all day Saturday and all Saturday night because the Sabbath ending at sundown on Saturday there's no light again by which to visit the tomb and it wouldn't be safe and perhaps word had gotten through to them that there were soldiers guarding it anyway so for some 36 hours they waited and they grieved And I would venture to say nobody was doing much of anything else. For those 36 hours, life didn't matter. We need to note here that Jesus' burial was the final evidence of his death. It was unimpeachable evidence that Jesus was gone. He did not pass out, only to be revived in the tomb later. The Lamb of God had laid down his life. He was dead, and the women waited. Verse 56, they went home, and they prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Jesus was dead. But there's another side to the story. It begins in this last great chapter of Luke, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb Over perhaps a chest-high opening in the tomb, a large stone was rolled in order to seal the entrance. The women are not sure how they will roll the stone away from that entrance, but they head to the tomb on this Sunday morning anyway, and to their surprise, the stone is gone, or at least rolled away from the tomb. They found, verse 2, the stone rolled away, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They're stunned. It had been right there some 40 hours earlier. They knew this was the place. They watched as Jesus, as Joseph laid the body of Jesus in the tomb and rolled that massive stone over the entrance. They knew this was the place. There was no question in their minds, probably not out of the question that they're asking one another. This is it. I know this is it. He's not here. They're stunned. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Similar language to the transfiguration in chapter 9. Apparently it's the body 
of these glorious angelic beings that's shining right through their clothes, illumining them and showing their transcendent glory as angelic messengers. And as might be expected, the women are terrified. In their fright, verse 5, they bow down with their faces to the ground. This is a sign of reverence in the presence of a celestial being. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Ladies, no one's home here. He's gone. He's no longer in the land of the dead. He's now in the land of the living. He's in the land of the forever living. He is risen, or literally, he has been raised the theological passive pointing to the work of God. He has been raised. God has finally spoken His word of judgment on the work of Jesus. He's alive. The angels announce the truth. Then they remind the women that this is all according to plan. Middle of verse 6, they say, Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. To paraphrase, the angels say, Remember back in Galilee, your home territory, where you've come from to attend Jesus? Remember that Jesus told you He would die. He told you that He would rise from the dead. We need to hear those words again. So I invite you to turn to chapter 9 and verse 22. They are so crucial to the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke chapter 9 and verse 22 In Galilee, Jesus had said earlier, 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Chapter 18 and verse 31. Chapter 18. Verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and He told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Notice the reference to the prophets. His life is lived in fulfillment of prophetic word. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. On the third day, He will rise again. Jesus' death was no accident, no head-on collision with bad luck. It is Jesus' promise to rise again that determines the meaning of His death and resurrection. Jesus did not come out of the tomb and say, wow, this is really weird. 
I didn't see this coming. Now what am I going to do? Jesus came out of the tomb in victory, knowing all along that this was the divine plan. His death and resurrection was a divinely scripted act from beginning to end. Remember the prophecies to Mary back when Jesus, at Jesus' birth, your heart will be pierced. But in this one is light. If the light of Jesus was extinguished by death, as it is with all people, there was no hope. There was no light. But this, to the contrary, was a divinely scripted act, as proven by Jesus' earlier prophecies and as proven by the prophets of old who announced that his body would not see decay, who announced that he would live again. And at verse 8, the lights begin to come on. Back to 24 and verse 8. Then they remembered his words. That's right. And this verse, doesn't it, does it not remind us? We need to keep filling our minds with Scripture. Even when sometimes we find it boring, and even when sometimes we don't understand what we're reading, it's really foolish to say to parts of the Bible, I don't get that book, I don't get that, I'm not going to read it. Read it. Because it is possible to hear a familiar word for the first time. They were familiar words. They'd heard it often, but they heard it for the first time. In another sense. Yes. I remember, Jesus, I remember him saying that he would rise from the dead. He said so many things that you thought were f literal and they were figurative, and so I don't know what they thought, but they, we never really got it. But yeah, he said that often. And it appears that he meant exactly what he said. And having remembered they had a story to tell. And off they run from the tomb. On June 18, 1815, at Waterloo, the French army under the command of Napoleon engaged the British army under the command of Wellington. The hopes and dreams of the British Empire rested on the shoulders of Wellington on that day. With great anxiety, the island empire waited for word of the battle's conclusion from the continent across the channel. Finally, in the technology of that day, the communication system of that day, finally there was a light that was beamed from France across the English Channel to the people, to the British people awaiting the message. And the message that was received by that beam was this. Wellington defeated. The island fell into panic. The British Financial Board of Trade almost collapsed on the spot. But the reality was that a fog had rolled in across the channel and had obscured the full message which read, Wellington defeated 
Napoleon at Waterloo. On the dark Friday of Passover, the disciples of Jesus received this message. Jesus defeated. At that moment, the fog of his tragic death rolled in to obscure the true message. But now the fog was beginning to lift. And the message that was sent read clearly now, Jesus defeated death at Calvary. It was this message the trembling women hurried to share. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Rushing back with the glorious news, they speak to the leaders of Jesus' group, the apostles, and to all the other disciples. And with joy of heart, they begin to proclaim the message, Jesus defeated death at the place of the skull. He's gone. He's alive. The angels have said it. Verse 11 reminds us that this is no fictional account. The women are way ahead of the men on this one. And the apostles of Jesus are presented in pretty bad light, for it says that they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They did not believe the report. I have a hard time believing the women did not say to them, remember how Jesus said this? And that was the revelation that they received at the tomb. I, it's difficult for me to think they weren't saying, remember, he said he would rise again. It just hit them like a bunch of silly talk. They don't understand it. They can't filter it. They don't believe it. They're devastated. They are grieving. They are heartbroken men. This report collides with their grief, and they cannot shift gears fast enough to keep up with the changing drama. Yet despite the men's dismissal of the women's report, Peter is too curious to let it go, and he runs to investigate. Verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. He stoops, that is, to enter the low entryway into the tomb, and his investigation confirms that indeed the body is gone. But curiously, the strips of linen cloth in which Jesus was wrapped are still there. If people are going to come and steal a body, particularly with Roman soldiers supposedly guarding the tomb, they're going to move quickly. You're not going to take time to unwrap the body. But here are the grave clothes laying right where they were. Something unprecedented had happened. 
If a thief steals a computer from an electronics store, he does not take the time to open the box and unwrap the computer and put it under his arm. Jesus' body is gone, but the packaging's here. And the river of Peter's grief and sorrow is joined by the confluence of amazement and wonder. What could this mean? The angelic interpretation is what we are left to conclude. He is not here. He is risen. You know, we will spend the rest of eternity seeking to understand the wonder and the history-altering implications of Christ's resurrection. But this event was the great cosmological, physical victory of the ages. There has never been a greater victory won through this death, this resurrection. You know, when Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, he's not coming up with a new concept. He is, in fact, encapsulating all that the Old Testament had taught, that the soul that sins will die. The wages of sin is death. Death has come to us as a race, as people, Because we have violated the will of God, our Creator. There is no other explanation for death. God created us to live forever. He created us for joy and gladness and goodness to be lived in community forever rolling ages. We weren't created to die as such. But the soul that sins dies. When Adam and Eve violated the will of God, death was introduced into the bloodstream of humanity. And it would take nothing less than God Himself to reverse it. It took Jesus Christ, who has been displayed to us in the Gospel of Luke as the one who has never sinned, as the spotless, righteous man of all goodness. This one sent on a mission from God to conquer death by tasting it in the place of sinners. This Lamb of God lays down His life for the sinner. But that mission was an utter failure apart from the resurrection. You can say that. The Apostle Paul said it very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus conquered death only by means of resurrection. Of course, it's the only way to conquer it. But it was His resurrection that won the day. If Jesus was himself conquered by death, if this story is just a myth, we have no hope. Death is the final conquering foe. We have nothing with a dead Savior. Nothing. We're just like every other religion, every other attempt to please God or to somehow get along in this fallen world. We have nothing. 
And those Christians who take the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and say that He simply died a normal death and did not rise from the dead in bodily form have killed Christianity. You might as well turn out the lights and go home. Because there's nothing there. It's a hollow, useless faith. Everything that I believe about eternity and God and Jesus Christ and His Word, everything that we believe as a church is staked to this truth. Jesus really rose from the dead. He lives. In bodily form, He beat death. We stand as a church this day to announce that truth. And we gather on the first day of the week for that very purpose. Because fulfilling the law of God, Jesus Christ moved our day of focus from Sabbath to the resurrection day. We now rest in the Sabbath rest of Christ who has taken all the work and taken the penalty and paid the price. And we now gather on this first day of the week to announce the whole thing. He lives. Jesus Christ has defeated death. He gave it a fatal blow. It has been defeated and therefore sin has been addressed. Why do we die? Because the wages of sin is death, but Jesus addressed death. We can now relate to God through this living Christ. If Jesus is dead, if He did not rise from the dead, then the bridge to God burned to ashes and we have no access to the Father. But the veil of the temple, remember, was rent in two. And the living Jesus passed into the presence of God in behalf of His people. And now, on the authority of the risen Jesus Christ, whose blood speaks for us, we can come into the presence of God, our Father, and pray. There is hope of salvation from the penalty of sin because Jesus rose again. There is hope in Christ's resurrection that a day of victory is coming. Do you remember it? Did you hear it in Major Ballou's letter? Did you hear it at the end? Sarah. I mean, it, 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 it hits you in bringing this all to a head and, and brings grief as you hear his words. But the reason you hear his words and they contribute to the grief of the letter is because you're a Christian. Or because you think in a Christian way. Listen to it again. Because as hard as that letter is to hear, it closes with great hope. He says to his Sarah, Do not mourn me dead. Think that I am gone and wait for me. For we shall meet again. I know nothing of Sullivan Ballou's heart before God. But I do know that that thought is insanity apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
You can't say those words. We will meet again. Without the resurrection of Jesus, they're meaningless. But the empty tomb blows away the fog of death's cold veil. And it announces to a world languishing in the death grip of sin that Jesus defeated death. And the ultimate point, as glorious as it is, the ultimate point is not merely that we will see those whom we have loved who knew the Lord. That is a great and glorious truth, but ultimately the great truth is that we will go someday to stand before God forgiven of our sin with the death penalty removed. And we, on the authority of Jesus Christ, will be able to enter into the presence of God our Father and say that His wounds plead for me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. We can come before the Father's throne with such a plea. Because Jesus Christ is risen. And in His resurrection power, we can live. Let's sing. We must. And as we do, I encourage you to think carefully about what we are doing. We have heard the great and glorious truth of Jesus Christ risen. And we gather on this Lord's Day to announce that truth, to live in light of that truth, to exalt the name of our God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In light of this text today, may we not sing with lethargy. Let's sing and lift our voices with all of our strength to the glory of our great Savior as we sing of this great resurrection truth. I invite you to 365 in your hymnals, 365. And let's stand together as we sing this hymn in response. Three six.